spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. Would you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said that he went through a lot of hard times when he was ministering the gospel, and he said because of that, he got to taste of the comfort that God gives when we're in those hard times. And when we don't have comfort from this world, Paul says that these hardships, these hard trials, he said he was so hard-pressed in Asia he was burdened beyond his strength. Not just him. I want you to look at verse 8. It says, we, meaning Timothy, who was with him writing this letter, he says, we despaired even of life. Anyone here ever f- felt this way, like you just wish it was over? You had such a bad way, you're like, I just would like to check out, go home with the Lord, let's be done. And I take great comfort, it says right here in the scripture, that even Paul and Timothy had that, and they despaired even of their lives. They're like, man, this is too hard. But Paul, he said that indeed we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but rather we would trust in God who raises the dead. It really comes down to what do you trust in? Do you trust in yourself, in your own strengths, in your own abilities, or do you trust in the Lord? And Paul says that when you go through burdens, I mean, excessive, so hard that it drives you to that place where you're beyond your own strength, it's to teach you to trust not in yourself. It's to teach you to trust in God. Because if we don't put our trust in the right place, guys, we're really behind the eight ball on this, trying to walk through this life. If we're just trusting in our own strengths, in our own flesh, there's going to come a few problems from that. And Paul knows it. So Paul says that these things forced him to trust in God. In verse 10, he said, Who delivered us also from this great peril of death and will deliver us. He has delivered us. And this is what Paul has come to learn. He did it then. And now I know he will do it in the future. The the beauty of experiencing things of the Lord, the things of the Lord are everlasting. When God shows you he's got enough strength to get you through the times when you don't have strength. Remember, Paul's the one who wrote, when I am weak, then I am strong. What a crazy statement. I mean, if you think of it without the spirit included, because if you're thinking, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, you're like, are you cuckoo? No, no, he was saying, when I'm weak, then I'm strong because I know my strength isn't in myself. 
My strength comes from the Lord. When you go through these things that burden you beyond your strength, that's when you're forced to find out what are you really going to trust in. But Paul says he saw that God delivered him from the peril of death. He Not just him, him and Timothy, he delivered us on whom we have set our hope and yet we know he will deliver us. The beauty of seeing God's hand of delivering you in a situation and learning to trust him for today is it helps you trust him for tomorrow. Because you go, well, he got me through that. And if he got me through that, do you think he can handle tomorrow? This is the beauty of serving the Lord. The longer you do it, the more you really don't worry about tomorrow. Because you're like, hey, the Lord got me through that yesterday and the day before. And I've been through a lot of trials. He's got me through all that stuff. Now, he might put something bigger in front of you. But just to let you know, in God's mathematical scheme, whatever you're facing in the future... You might say, but it's a bigger trial than what I went through. I've never gone through one quite as big as that. I'm going to tell you, in God's mathematics, you need to learn what's called summing up. In other words, add the trial when you were trusting him for your rent, and add the trial the day before when you're trusting him for your relationship, and the trial from a couple weeks before that for your car payment or your electric bill, and sum up all of those things that that little trust you needed here, and that trust, that, and that trust, and add them up and say, is it enough to be greater than what I'm facing right now? And it will be. You know how I know this? I learned it from the Old Testament in the life of a man named David. David had to face Goliath. Remember that? The king wanted to put David in all of the king's armor. Here, wear my shield, wear my sword, wear my helmet, all this stuff. And they actually took this little kid, David, and they suited him up with the king's armor. What did David say? I don't know this stuff. This isn't proven to me. I can't fight with this. But what I do know, God delivered the lion that attacked the sheep into my hand. He delivered the bear into my hand. So he had two experiences, a lion and a bear that attacked. And God let him beat both of those. And David said, this Goliath, this giant, would be just like that lion and the bear. In his mind, he just summed up. If I could take out a lion and a bear by the strength of the Lord, and by trusting in God, then I can take out this guy. So he took off all the king's armor. Gets his sling, right? Some stones, five stones he takes, puts in his pouch. How many did he use? One. Why the other four? Because Goliath had four other brothers. He was going to be symbolically the guy that will take out the other four heads of the Philistines. I go with what I know. I'll trust the Lord. He said to him, you come with all of your stuff. I come with the Lord. In the name of the Lord, this day you're going to die. To Goliath, he tells him. And he throws that stone, and it goes right into his forehead, and he dies. It's because he trusted God. What do we trust in when we face giants in this life? There are going to be things you're going to face that will be just like giants. Now, remember, everything happened in the Old Testament says happened for our example. It happened so that we could learn the lesson from what they went through, and we could say, hey, how could I use that for me? Paul is now going to say, these guys in the Corinthian church, I know God will yet deliver us. Then you also, by joining in helping us through prayer. You joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on behalf of the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Is there any power in prayer? It's not just talking to the air. We're talking to the living God. God Almighty. And when you talk to him, Paul says, 
you guys are helping us by joining in in prayer. Now, sometimes you think, you see somebody who's despairing. I mean, they're at the end of their strength. They're burdened excessively. They're going through cancer treatments or they're going through a divorce. Their life is just unraveling before them. And you think, what can I do? You can pray for them. One of the greatest comforts, whether you realize it or not, sometimes some of your friends are going to be going through some really hard things. You're thinking, what can I say to them? How can I help them? It's easy. You know how you help them? You say, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And I'll join you what you're going through by I'll keep praying to the Lord to help get you through this. That comforts them, doesn't it? Now they can say, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And it's funny to atheists when they hit a really rough patch. I tell them, I'm praying for you. They don't go, oh, don't do that. All of a sudden, they sound like a believer. Oh, thank you. I really need that. Paul understood this. He said, the way that you can really help someone in that place when they're just burdened beyond their strength, they are pressed down so bad, you can help them by just saying, I'm praying for you. I'm joining with you in prayer to see you through this thing. Now, Paul says in verse 12, our proud confidence is this, that the testimony of our conscience that is, in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in this world, and especially towards you. Have you ever thought about how do we conduct ourselves in this world? Paul says that he conducted himself with a clear conscience. This almost got him stoned. Well, they actually did pick up rocks to stone him when he said, I have a perfectly clear conscience before God this day as he was testifying of the Lord and the work that God does. You know, when you ask the Lord to forgive you, how thorough is his cleansing? Though our sin be as scarlet, he makes it white as snow. It's clean. It's washed away. If you go to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I need you to forgive me, he goes, done. And it says, as far as east is from west, in a straight line, he takes our sin and removes it from us. That's a long ways. That's infinity. You say, Lord, I got this dark mark on my soul. This is a bad thing. Forgive me. Cleanse me. He goes, done. Give me that. And he's the best stain remover there is. I mean, spiritual stains that we get in our lives from sin. He just cleans it up and gone. Now, I love this because it says in another psalm, he casts our sin into the sea I got an ocean behind me just for visual aid. He calls it the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. So your sin gets sent out and down to the bottom, never to be brought up ever again. I like God's forgiveness way better than man's. It's like a weight is lifted off my shoulder. It's just like, thank you. Such a kind God. He goes, I forgive you. And, you know, when I was a new Christian, I didn't quite understand that verse yet. So I'd be like, guilty conscience about them, not like Paul with a clear conscience. I had a guilty conscience about certain things I was doing wrong. And I'd be like, oh God, forgive me for doing this. And the Lord go, I forgive you. That might sound really simple to you, but that's a really deep spiritual truth. And when you ask the Lord's forgiveness and he says, you're forgiven, I paid for that with my son's blood. What did John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not takes your sin and keeps shoving it in your face. He takes our sin away. Man, what a glorious feeling. This is good news. When you realize your sin is gone, cast into the sea of forgetfulness, you can now move on. You're free to move forward in life. And believe me, mistakes of the past. How many of you know someone that is stuck in a rut? They made a mistake in their past 
and it just keeps haunting them. Every time you're around them, it comes back up. And the scripture says, do not look back. Don't call to mind the former things. Don't bring to mind the things of the past. It says to look forward. Press on to higher and upward callings in the Lord. Don't be stuck in the past. But sin, when you don't deal with it, you're going to have a guilty conscience. And that guilty conscience is going to hold you back. Paul said here, our proud confidence is that the testimony of our conscience is that we have lived in holiness and in godly sincerity. Holy means set apart, separated for God's use. We've lived our lives separated for his use with a godly sincerity. Sincere in, in Latin, sin is without, seri is, is wax. Sincere means without wax. It's a term that came from when they used to carve marble statues. The guy would be chipping away on the bust and the chest and the head of the guy, and he'd be on the nose, and all of a sudden, you know, that marble soft, tink, the nose pops off. Well, the craftsman's put all that work in. He's like, I'm not going to lose this baby. So takes a little wax, a little bit of powder, mixes it together, gets the marble nose, smushes it back on there, and finishes the project and keeps it in the shade. And then he sells it. And the problem with that is, is that when it's not the genuine article, that person buys it and takes it home and the sun hits it, what happens to the nose? Melts and runs right off the face. It falls off. And so the term sincere without wax meant the genuine article. The whole thing is real. It's not been patched up with wax hiding the flaws. This is how Paul says we live with godly sincerity. I hate to tell you this, but I can't even watch a lot of the Christian television because I watch those fellows and they're like, praise Jesus, it's all wonderful today. There's nothing wrong in my life. And I'm like, you liar. What reality are you living in? And Jesus said, in this world, you shall have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. If the guy got up there and said, Praise the Lord. Even though I have tribulations, the Lord says he'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He's my rock. He will get me through these things. I can handle a guy telling me that. I can say amen to that. I know what that feels like. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian and having a hard day. There's nothing wrong with even saying, hey, I'm having a hard time. Because when you're honest about it, maybe your friend or your coworker might say, well, hey, I'll be praying for you. And they'll join in your sorrow and in your trial through prayers. And God will help them to grow in their prayer life. At the same time, he'll deliver you. And in so doing, you'll see a little expression of God that you never would see if you just try to do it all on your own. When we try to do everything on our own, well, God's pretty good at showing us how much our strength is finite. But we didn't serve in our conscience with fleshly wisdom. He said instead... We served with the grace of God. And we conducted ourselves in this world, especially toward you, with this grace. Man, it's so nice when Christians walk with grace. Now, what is grace? By definition, the Bible says grace is a free gift, unmerited favor. It's a, it's a gift given that we didn't earn, God paid for. It actually wasn't free, as in cheap, inexpensive. It was very expensive. Our salvation cost God a lot. Cost him the very life of his only begotten son. That's a heavy price to pay, especially for a bunch of sinners. I mean, think about it. 
The Bible says, for a good man, one might dare die. But for an evil man? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, let him perish. He's evil. And God goes, no, let my son take that evil man's sin on him. He'll pay. He will be the lamb whose blood will be spilled, that perfect lamb, that offering to God, that will pay for even the evil man's sin. That blows my mind. What a loving God. He loves all the sinners. He didn't say, I love you when you get it together. By the way, if anyone ever says that to you, I'm going to come to church once I get it together, tell them I'll never see you then. If you're going to wait until they get it together to come to church, I'm never going to see them. Sorry, it doesn't work that way. So the church is a spiritual hospital. You don't have people wait till they get well to go to a hospital, do you? I need you to know this. This is a reality that is wrong in the minds of some people. And the devil perpetuates this thing. He tells people, you're not good enough to go to that church. It'd be like saying to someone who's sick, you're not well enough to go to the hospital. Duh, I'm sick. I need to go to the hospital. If you're spiritually sick, you need to get to church. It's a spiritual hospital for your soul. That's what it's there for. And that we have other sick souls around us should not surprise us. We know that this is not the museum of the righteous. This is the gathering where the sick come to the great physician. It's a spiritual hospital that we get to come to Jesus, who is the great physician of our soul. And he's there to help us. I, I feel like the candy striper. All I do is point you to the doctor, get you to Jesus. He's the one who fixes people up. Some people think the pastors fix up people. We don't do that. We point you to the guy who got the power to fix you, Jesus. My job is just to get people pointed to him. Now, if people understood that, I think people would feel a lot more comfortable going to churches because they'd be like, man, I need help right now. I'm not doing well. I'm struggling. I'm spiritually hurting. I'm spiritually sick. There's some, they're like a mess. I hate it when I see churches going, you know, you need to clean up before you come in here. Did Jesus ever do that to anybody? They tell him, hey, you're not dressed right. I hate to tell you this. I've seen this in churches where people are like, you're not properly attired for this church. I didn't know Jesus cared about the outside. It seems like he always talks about the heart, what's on the inside. To the Pharisees, the ones that were actually dressed real nice, he said, you whitewashed tombs, you sepulchers. That's a compliment, right? A sepulcher is a big stone tomb. He goes, you guys are pretty and white on the outside and full of dead man's bones on the inside. And those were the spiritual leaders back then. You look really good on the outside and you're dead inside. That's not what we want to be. We want to be full of the life of the Lord on the inside. The outside will take care of itself. I never worry about that. I found the Lord is really good at taking a person and helping them out with the outside, but he starts from the inside out. That's the focus. Now, Paul says, this is a wisdom that he learned, not fleshly. Fleshly wisdom always is concerned about stuff on the outside, but the Lord is concerned about stuff on the inside. I like what James said. Would you turn to James chapter 3? Everyone knows John 3.16. I want to show you James 3.16, verse 13. He said, who's wise amongst you? Any of you have understanding you're wise? He said, let him show by his good behavior and by his deeds in gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy or if you have selfish ambition, if it's all about you, me, 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 I need some me time, that selfish ambition is in your heart. Don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. It's what comes from the earth, 
It's demonic. For wherever jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there's disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above, ah, the wisdom from above is first pure, and it's peaceable and gentle and reasonable, and it's full of mercy, full of good fruit. It's unwavering without hypocrisy. The seeds whose fruit is sown in righteousness are sown in peace by those who make peace. What a sweet thing when we walk in the things from above, the pure, the peaceable, the gentle things, the merciful things of God. But whenever a person is focused on, I want that, and they're jealous, that wisdom's not from God. That wisdom's from down below. The devil uses jealousy and selfish ambition all the time to sidetrack a lot of Christians. And I hate it because even within the context of some of the teachings that people are saying they got from the Bible, which they're not balanced teachings, they're really out of balance. They're saying, God made you a child of the king. As one of his children, you deserve to have a mansion and a Mercedes. And I do too, so give me more of your money so I can get my fifth Mercedes and my fifth mansion. And I I mean, there's some preachers out there that are preaching stuff that is not the gospel. It's a false teaching, not from the Lord. That stuff is all about selfish ambition. And every time that you get selfish ambition or jealousy, there will be disorder and every evil thing. Have any of you ever walked into a place and just felt like there was chaos in the room? I mean, there's just a tension in the air. You're like, something's up, man. It could be a workplace. It could be a family gathering. And there's this tension. I mean, so thick you could cut it with a knife. And you're just like, what's going on? I submit to you, someone in the room has a jealousy. Or somebody has a selfish ambition. Somebody wants it done their way. They want the plates to be set out this way. They want the food in that row. They want this that way. And it has caused tension in the whole family. All because one person wants it their way. Because this is wisdom from below. The wisdom from below wants everything its way. It's not from above. Wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle, reasonable. Some of those people are not reasonable who want their thing their way. This reminds me in Mark's gospel. In chapter 8, Jesus, he took him to Caesarea Philippi in Mark 8. He said, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Maybe Moses back. We don't know. And Jesus said, well, to Peter, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the one sent to save. And he warned him. He said, don't tell anyone about this. Now in Matthew's gospel, he says, good job, Peter. That revelation is from God. Can you see Peter's head just swelling? Did you hear that, guys? Me and God, we're tight. I'm tied in, man. I got that from God down the pipe right to me. You guys didn't get it. I got it. That's Jesus. He's the Messiah. The only problem is if you read a couple verses later, Jesus said, now I'm going to go die for you guys. And I'm going to be crucified and beaten and buried. And three days later, I'm going to rise. And what was Peter's answer? No, by no means, Lord. You can't die. And what was Jesus' answer to him? Jesus turned around, seeing his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. And he said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Now, Peter, who just had a revelation from heaven that Jesus was the Messiah, shows me how fickle men are. I'm glad Peter was in the book here. Because you ever had one day where you're having a really good spiritual moment 
and you're followed by some jerk who cuts you off in traffic, and you're like, what happened? Just a little shift of interest. You went from the interest on the things of God to the interest on the things of man. Peter did it, and Jesus called him on it and said, get behind me, Satan. And if you got just one person not walking in godly wisdom, just one is all it takes. It's amazing how much tension can be introduced to a group of people where one person starts fleshing out. Guys, I have news for you. Paul says we didn't conduct ourselves this way. We conducted ourselves in sincerity, without wax, just genuine people. Are we willing to live with godly sincerity in holiness? So people see us and they see, man, the guy's not perfect, but he really tries to maintain a good conscience. If he does something wrong, he is quick to repent. Guys, we should just live genuine, holy before the Lord, like real people and say, hey, this is it. And let God's spirit work through us so that the things from above are what is present in our lives and in our midst. That's what people tell. That's when they come around you and they go, you know, I went to that church and the people were real. We have to be like Paul, genuine, no wax, no fakey, just be who you are. You're having a rough day. Okay. Maybe the brother next to you is going to be the one that's going to be praying for you this week and joining you in prayer. Or maybe you're going to be the one that's going to help someone else because maybe they're struggling and you are going, how can I help them? Well, you got the answer today. You can join them in prayer through their trial. Just say, I'm here for you. I'm praying for you. Amazing Grace Kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson. You can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on iTunes titled Celebrate the Lord or at our podcast site, celebratethelord.org. And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the Big Island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at AmazingGraceKona.com. Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona.